Well, all right. We are uh, in the midst of a summer series of sorts that you can call it, and we're just uh, we we are we're talking about one word, and it is entrusted. Entrusted, and what does it look like? What does it mean to be entrusted with something? I looked up the the. Um, definition of the word stewardship, and it's this, the job of supervising or taking care of something, the job of supervising or taking care of something. I found that to be a really healthy definition because it doesn't, it doesn't speak to just one thing. I grew up in the church, the evangelical uh, Protestant church my whole life. I, I, uh, my parents would tell me that uh, I was, I was born, I think, on a, on a Monday or a Tuesday. I was in the church nursery on Sunday, you know, like that kind of thing, right? And I was the kind of kid, and I was raised in a kind of family where if there was something going on at the church and the doors were unlocked at the church or there was some kind of service project, I was there. Like my, if my parents couldn't be there, they could, they could at least load me in the car, drop me off at the church, and then say either walk home or find a ride home, but you're going to be here for it, right? So... Uh, I say that to say that any time the word stewardship came up in the church, automatically everyone's radar says, uh-oh, we're going to talk about money. And that's why I asked Dwayne to preach last week. Uh, because uh, talking about finances is something that we tend to shy away from. Now, Dwayne did a great job last week of just walking us through a God-honoring view of our finances. It's really necessary to talk about it. He said this in his message, that the, 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 the concept of money is brought up by Jesus more times than most other topics. So why do we shy away from it? Why do we, why do we think that it's an intimidating thing to talk about? Or why do we think that it's... I think it can be self-serving. I said that more of like a humorous way that, I, that I, that's why I asked Dwayne to preach. But let me tell you the honest reason why I asked Dwayne to preach, and he's going to hate this. Because I know his character, because I've gotten to know him as a man of God, and there's nobody, I believe, more qualified in this room to stand up and speak on a God-honoring view of how you, how you view your stuff and how you manage what God has blessed you with more than how I've gotten to know Dwayne in almost, almost five years of knowing him. So whether he felt like he was the right person up here or not, I believe that nobody could have done a better job than he did. So thank you, brother, for filling in last week and doing such a good job. But thank you more for modeling it, for being someone that is uh, understanding of what it means to be entrusted with tools and resources to further the gospel. Stewardship is a foundational concept in our Christian living. So if we're going to say or take, take Jesus seriously at all or at any level, we have to talk about stewardship. But not just from the financial end. And I said that at the beginning because I think that's how our brains are wired, especially if you were, maybe you don't see it that way, but if you, if you grew up in the setting that I grew up in or had gone to the church your whole life, it seems like any time the word stewardship got brought up, it automatically equated to money. Does anyone else feel that? Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily 100% wrong. I just don't think it's 100% accurate either. Stewardship and finances are just one section of stewardship because look back at the, at the definition, the job of supervising or taking care of something. Something, not just wealth, financial wealth or uh, finances altogether. 
Stewardship is foundational. I want you to look back with me at this verse in 1 Thessalonians. If you want to turn there, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. If you're using the Bible in front of you, it's on page 681. I don't think that page actually has a page number on it. So look for 680, and then the next page is 1 Thessalonians. I think it only takes up two pages in that Bible in front of you. So 681. Before we go any further, would you pray with me? God, we are to steward our resources, and that's every part, every breath we have. So here I am this morning asking you to give me wisdom and fill me with your spirit, which you already have, and give me wisdom to steward these words well. Give us uh, wise stewardship in how we receive them and how we hear them. Thank you for how you've been so faithful. May we recognize that, and in your faithfulness to us, may we be faithful to you, that we want to learn, that we want to know how to, at a deeper level, understand who you are. And whatever level we're at this morning, I pray that this hits us right where we need to be hit, and we get to walk out in joy and obedience to a loving God. Thank you for this moment. May it be used well for your glory and for your honor. In your name I pray. Amen. You know, I, I found myself thinking this past week to steward the church. You know, when you're a pastor, that's one of the things that they, they teach you in school is that you're to steward a congregation. And, and that's one of those things that you can fill in the blank on an exam, but then you walk away and you start thinking through like the, the ramifications of that sentence and it's, it's far reaching. And I think that the, the, the American model has become that if you are uh, a pastor at a church, your whole week is built up to Sunday morning. And anything else that comes into your week, you have to fit into your prep for Sunday morning. And I found myself this past week just wondering why we put such a weighted importance on this one aspect. One aspect of being together. Being together and making sure that when we're together, we do it well. That's important. But I found myself feeling really excited about the fact that here, what we, we probably put like a 50-50 weighted importance on being the church here and being the church outside of these walls. And I think that's healthy. I think that's good. I think that whenever Dusty's tasked with stewarding the, our worship through music and song, he has handled that responsibility well. And I think whenever our worship team members are being asked to steward their talents and abilities to come alongside us as we enter into God's presence, I feel like they are stewarding those gifts well. I feel like when I look at our budget and I think that we're, we're, starting, we're, we're meeting our numbers, we're staying below expenses, that God has, has helped us understand to steward our finances well. And so stewardship is something that I think we're, we grapple with, whether we realize we grapple with it or not. But this verse just has rocked my world lately, and I just want to keep pointing our attention back to it. It's 1 Thessalonians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 4. Paul's writing this letter. We're going to go into some more of this later, but this one verse, like I said, it's, just, it's rocked my world lately. He says this, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And the reason that's rocked my world lately is every time I read it, it just blows me away again, because there's certain words that jump out at you, or they should jump out at you and I as the reader of this. 
And some of those are uh, entrusted, gospel, speak, approved. I think I explained this to you before, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna revisit it all. But that that whole concept of God of the universe, the Creator of the world, the one who, when there was nothing, spoke powerful words out of His mouth, and things came into existence: the galaxy, the the Earth. The, the exact speed at which it spins and orbits around the sun, the exact, uh, the exact tilt of its axis, all of that in an instant spoken out of the mouth of God. That same God has approved me to be entrusted with the good news that His Son is the only saving grace that gets us an eternal relationship with God. He slid that to my side of the table. He looked at me and he said, I approve you and I'm entrusting you with this. You have the job of supervising or taking care of the gospel. That to me is a game changer. The good news of Jesus has been slid to my side of the table. I've received it. Just like this video talked about this morning, I've received that gift. I get to walk in that truth. I get to live out of that truth. And in that, God of the universe has approved me not just to receive the gift and the benefits of the gospel, but to be entrusted with it so that other people can find it too. And I love what Paul says next. He says that we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, comma, So we speak. Here's what I gather from that. The more I read it, the more I study it, the more I look into other things that Paul's saying, there's so much of Paul's lessons and letters that he writes that can be summed up in this sentence. He's saying, you haven't been entrusted with your family. You haven't been entrusted with your wealth. You haven't been entrusted with your education. You haven't been entrusted with your talents or abilities or your time. You have been entrusted with the gospel. And all other things are tools and resources used to further the gospel. And each one of us has been given a different set of tools and resources. He said that you have been approved and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. The reason Paul does what he does, the reason he goes where he goes and says what he says, the reason that he, he is willing to, in Philippi, get dragged outside of the city and get rocks thrown at him just like they did to Stephen, so much so that they thought he was dead, and he digs himself out, half dead, out of this rock pile, and then crawls back into the city and starts preaching to these people again. Now, some would say he was crazy, and I think to live that boldly for Jesus, you do have to be a bit crazy. You do have to have a few screws loosed. But what was driving him to do it wasn't this, like, pride trip or wasn't the fact that he felt like he, was, he, was, he deserved it. It wasn't that he was like, no, 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 I, I said that. I wish, I, I, I want to say it better next time. I want to say it better next time. I, I, don't, want him to make him, I don't want to make him so upset this time. I'm going I'm gonna to ease it back a little bit. And it goes back in and does the same thing. Now, that, that same scenario with different outcomes can be, or, or different factors can be retold throughout Paul's lifetime. But why would he do it? 
Why would he do it? It's easy to say he did it because he loved Jesus. It's easy to say that. It's easy to say that he did it because he knew God's word and he loved Jesus. But what Paul tells us is much deeper than that. Why did he do it? Because he's been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who, mic drop, tests our hearts. That's the hard part. Because what Paul's saying there is that it's, it, it's not so much whether you know whether what I'm saying is being said to please man. It's that God knows my heart. God knows my motives. God knows what draws me to stand up here. And if what draws me to stand up here is just the fact that I have an audience, God knows my heart. God tests my heart. And he does for all of us. So if we speak to please man, if we say, oh, I can't do that because that would, that would really upset the apple cart. I speak to a friend of mine uh, recently who's just having some trouble and some leadership things going on in his life. And he mentioned to me that, you know, I know, I know this is what needs to happen, but I know that if I do it, man, it's going to upset about these 40, 50 people. And the next words out of his mouth were so hard to hear. He said, I just don't know if it's worth it. And I thought, man, when we come back to the gospel, it's always worth it. It's always worth it. So that's the premise behind why we're talking about this entrusted. And finances are such a huge part of that because it's such a huge part of who we are as a society. If you were to look at uh, polls going into any election year for any reason, not to talk about politics because it's like my least favorite thing to talk about. I'd rather talk about anything. But if you read up on the polls, most people when asked what their number one concern leading up to an election are, most people, I don't know the percentages and I'm not going to make them up, would say that something having to do with the economy rises to the surface. If you were to listen in on the topics that came out of the two debates this past week, I think 60% of the things that were talked about by each candidate came back to some way of the economy. Finances is huge for us. But in the economy of God, it's relatively small. In the economy of God, it's all His, and He's letting us use it. And so that makes stewardship a little easier to understand and that's what Dwayne was speaking on last week. You do an audit for yourself and you'll see right away how you view it. You put that up against how God views it and you'll get to see where your problem areas are. But this, this week, I want to piggyback off of that and talk about what does it look like to steward our life? Like our literal breathing in, breathing out life. Like Paul modeled in 1 Thessalonians, like he was saying he, he did, and later on uh, we're going to get into that, how he talks about the troubles that he was in in Philippi, and it was like widely known amongst the church that, the, that he went through these trials and these troubles. You want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians. It's on page 660 in the Bible in front of you, 1 Corinthians chapter 6.
Now, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Every letter that Paul wrote has a, pretty much the exact same information in it, but thematically written to a specific audience. So what he's saying in, to the church in Corinth uh, varies from what he's writing to some of the other churches, but what Paul talked about continuously was the gospel, the good news of Jesus, this thing he'd been entrusted with. That's what he, every letter talked about that. And he hit that topic through talking about the cultural things that were happening wherever he's writing these letters to. And he's writing them to the church in Corinth here. And so I want you to bear with me as I read this because you're going to think I'm going to take a certain turn with this message, and I'm not. But I think it's important to read through this. Look at chapter 6, starting at verse 12. Paul says this, All things are lawful for me. Now listen, he starts that way because the previous section he's talking about how we should settle disputes with fellow believers by, by trying to work them out, not by suing one another. So he's using this, this language on purpose. All things are lawful for me, verse 12, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise, up, raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So, Contextually speaking, there are problems being addressed by the church or in, in, within the church by Paul, and one of those things that he has to address is the rampant sexual immorality, the way that people are just using their bodies and, and pursuing pleasures and still saying that that's okay within the church. And so Paul is intentionally talking about that with this letter. And although it is one of those things that definitely needs to be talked about because God talked about it, that's not the main point that we want to talk about this morning. I want to look more at the bookends of what he's saying here. I want to look more at how he starts this passage and how he ends this part of his letter. Look at verse 12 again. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, he goes in to talk about sexual morality because he sees in their society it has run rampant to pursue those pleasures, those earthly pleasures, as opposed to living out of the beauty and the glory of the gospel and obedience to God. But I want to just step away from the specific of it and look at the heart of it because look, that's verse 12. Look at verse 19 and 20. He sort of takes a little turn here. And he says, we might need to do some education here. Do you not know 
that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you ever uh, memorized scripture as a kid, you probably, if you memorized that, you probably memorized an NIV. That's how I memorized it, and it was honor God with your body. This morning, the kids are learning about the tabernacle. I thought that was pretty providential how God lined that up because it was not intentional. But this morning, what they're talking about is how the tabernacle was set up. The tabernacle became the resting place of God and where where sacrifices were made to God in the Old Testament. And as the Israelites traveled through the desert for 40 years, they would set up the tabernacle every time they stopped. That's where they would do their sacrifices to God, and that's where the Holy Spirit would meet with them in the Holy of Holies. Later on, Solomon builds the temple, and the temple is in Jerusalem, and in the temple is an ornate section of the middle of the temple called the Holy of Holies, and from top to bottom, it has a really thick, heavy curtain that covers it, and only one person can go back there. Once a year, the high priest, and he'd wear these bells on the bottom of his gown, and he would stand in there and go like this while he was in there so everyone could hear the bells, and he'd have a rope tied around his ankle because if he went in there with sin in his life, he'd drop dead in the presence of God, and if they stopped hearing the bells, they'd drug his dead body out and they hope the next high priest was better than he was. The Holy of Holies was where God's Spirit resided amongst His people. And it was such a serious thing that if you entered into that presence of God with any sin in your life, you immediately fell dead. Now, fast forward to Jesus on the cross. Jesus goes up the hill with the cross on His back. Then He gets cruelly nailed to it. And I think I've said this before, but the way you die in a crucifixion is that you suffocate. It's a horrendous way to die. Scholars would say it's the worst and most agonizing way to die. So Jesus dies one of the most horrendous deaths in the history of the human race for our benefit. And when He looks up at the sky and draws His last breath and says, It is finished. The earth trembled. Jesus took His last breath And as the earth trembled, the temple trembled. And when the temple trembled from top to bottom, that curtain that separated man from the holy place of God tore from top to bottom. And what that symbolized was now man has direct access to the Holy Spirit because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It was an amazing moment. It was a game-changer moment. And that's what Paul's reinforcing here. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, the price of Jesus' life. So glorify God in your body. Because now the resting place of the Holy Spirit, the Holy of Holies, the thing that was behind the veil, behind the curtain, it's here. That's the church. I heard a friend of mine pray one time, and it stuck with me forever. I I throw it into my prayers on Sunday mornings sometimes, but I never forgot it. He said, God, thank you so much that when we unlocked the doors to a building, the church showed up. 
And it always stuck out to me because I thought I grew up thinking that the church was just this building we all gathered at for some reason. We listened to some guy babble for 35 to 40 minutes. I used to be in children's church saying, when can I go up to big church? And I'd get to big church and say, when can I go back with the kids? Paul's saying that the, your body, and, and I know contextually that he's hitting it from a specific angle, but so I'm not trying to take the scripture out of context. I think it applies. Because what he's doing is he's turning attention away, saying, or do you not know? Because if they don't know that their bodies are the resting place of the Holy Spirit who lives in them, whom, whom they have received from God, that they are not their own, that they were bought at a price, that they need to honor God with their body, if they don't know that, then talking to them about sexual immorality won't matter. It'll be just another topic preached on or taught on. It won't have any heart behind it. It won't have any oomph behind it. We can stand up here and give you all kinds of self-help advice on how to stay away from a specific sin, but if it's not rooted in the gospel, it won't make a lasting impact. And that's what Paul's saying here. Maybe you don't know, but let me tell you the brevity of this. And he's talking about sexual morality, yes, but what he ends with is saying, maybe you don't know. So let me remind you, Corinth, let me remind you, Journey Church, that if you are in Christ, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I was looking through the Israelite story, and I know that the ladies uh, did a study through Exodus. I think they're just pausing for that from, for the summer. But when you read through the story of the Exodus, all you see is frustration. That's one of the words that comes to mind when I read through the Israelite story, frustration. Moses gets credit for being one of the greatest leaders of all time because he didn't murder the Israelites. Now, he was a murderer, but ironically, he didn't kill an Israelite. He killed an Egyptian for killing an Israelite. And then later on in his life, he probably was like, I should have killed them all. I should have pushed them all off that scaffolding. But Moses is the one that goes to God and says, don't. Don't swallow them up. I know they're disobedient. I know, they, I know they're whiners. I know they're complainers. But you saved them coming out of Egypt. Let's continue this. And God's heart was softened by Moses' love for the people. And he did not destroy the people. But man, it's really easy to read the Exodus story, if you've ever done it, and not see yourself in the story. If you're anything like me. It's really easy to read the Israelite story. Man, they were such idiots. I would never do that. And then my French fries come out at the restaurant, not as crispy as I'd like. They're a little bit gummy, and I'm like, ugh. I hate getting fries here. First world problems, right? When you read through the story of the Israelites, you start to see that, uh, and remember, they were the ones that built the tabernacle. They were the ones that, that God instructed on how to build the resting place of the Holy Spirit, and they did it. 
They came with all of their gold and all the wood they could gather, and God gave them a specific list. That's what our kids are learning about right now. God gave them a specific list of materials, and they were to go into their own coffers and into their own stuff that they were to flee Egypt with, and they were to use that to build the tabernacle, and we don't see them complain about it. They just do it. They go and they gather up their gold and they gather up their ornate things and they see them get melted down and used for ornate things to honor God in the tabernacle. We see these people be provided for richly with food that comes from the sky and and quail that, that lands in their camp and is so stupid they let them catch them and eat them all they want, right? I mean, I might think birds are dumb, but those ones are extra dumb. God really made those ones dumb. Not all quails. I'm not a quail hater. Don't call PETA. So these people have been provided for left and right over and over and over and over and over again. And in their shining moments, they bring all their stuff to give glory to God. And in their worst moments, they look at Moses and say, it would have been better for you to leave us in Egypt Why'd you bring us out here in the desert to die? And I think that we're all a little bit like that. I think we're prone to forget the importance of running to God in any and all circumstances. I think we're prone to receiving God for salvation and then living however I want because I have my get-out-of-hell-free card. I got my get-out-of-hell-free card, so now I can live however I want, and I can segment my reality so that this is my holy place, and this is where I clean myself up, and this is, wherever I, this is where I do whatever I want. The Israelites, that's what, they, that's what their story was all about. The disciples in the New Testament, that was them. These moments where they're walking with the physical Jesus. Jesus is, is walking with them and they're, they're camping out at the same places. They're eating meals around the same tables and they still, they still lose sight of who he is. So yeah, we're prone to it. I'm prone to it. You know the old hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I'm prone to that. That's my default setting. That's what's scary is that's my default setting. You all have a default setting. And I can tell you that I have a default setting because I can start an exercise routine and it goes really well. And then we go, you know, just hypothetically, home to see our parents last week. Go to an amusement park. Hypothetically, of course. And... I hypothetically don't get up and exercise that morning, and I hypothetically do pound my weight worth of French fries and chicken tenders at the, at the amusement park. What's my default setting? If I'm being completely honest, my default setting is to be a pig. That's my default setting. That's my default setting. And so what softens that? It can be softened by waking up and realizing that maybe that shirt that I loved wearing doesn't fit anymore. Or it can be softened by the fact that I, if I'm going to accept this reality, I've got to go buy bigger pants. Like it, 
It can be softened by that, but it won't be sustainable. It has to be rooted in something eternal for it to make eternal impact. Those are all hypothetical situations. I just It's a friend of mine I'm talking about. But I'm prone, I'm prone to go back to my default setting. And that's what the Israelites are doing in the Israelite story. That's what the Corinthians are doing when Paul writes them a letter. That's what the Thessalonians are doing when Paul writes them a letter. They're all going back to their default setting. So Paul addresses the things that they're default going back to because it was their culture, it was what they did, it was how they were raised, it was what they saw, it was what was modeled, it was whatever, right? So they're slipping into their default setting and Paul addresses it. And he says, listen, you shouldn't go to the temple and sleep with prostitutes. That does not bring honor to God. Wait a second. You, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So yeah, he's talking about a very specific thing, but he's looking at people that slipped into their default setting. And we all have them. We all have them. I don't know what your default setting is, but whatever it is, when you or I slip into our default setting, we are not stewarding our life. Well, and do you realize that I think you can steward your finances, your talents, and your time well and still not steward your life well? When I say you, please don't hear me say you. I'm saying me. This stuff is hugely convicting to me. And I think I can make checklists. I can say that if I, if I have this figured out and if I, if I can steward my finances and my time and my talents, then I, I and here's how I do that. There's a sub-checklist underneath each one. Then I, I'm, I'm doing a good job. But what areas of my life do I slip back into this sinful default setting and lose sight of the fact that my body is the resting place of the Holy Spirit of God? Let that sink in, because that's what Paul's saying. It's not ironic that these people in Corinth are steeped in sexual sin. He ends the, he didn't write this in chapters, by the way. He just wrote a letter, right? And so the chapters and verses are for our benefit. But in in the end of that thought, he goes into, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so they're, they're reaching out to Paul and saying, hey, listen, whoa, wait a second. We got people in the church that are wrapped up in this sexual sin. Are they okay? Are they right? What's, what's going on here? And he goes into principles for marriage next in chapter 7. Again, not the thing we want to preach on this morning, not because it doesn't, desire, doesn't deserve to be preached on, but because I think there's a bigger concept here that Paul's addressing that it is important for us to wrestle with. Look back with me at 1 Thessalonians. Again, it's on page 681. I want you to hear some of the things that Paul says to this church in Thessalonica. In chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, 
look at, uh, we, we read chapter, uh, we read verse 4, but we're going to read verse 3 through 8, because I want you to hear the full context of why he's saying this. It, it says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, I'm going to pause there and just give you a little bit of context. Why is Paul saying that? Why is it important? Because he's giving you, he's giving you the warning. He's giving the Thessalonians the warning that the things that I am hearing about that need addressed, by addressing them, I will most likely upset a decent population of the church. And what he's saying is, I'm okay with that. Not for sheer fact that I can have bravado and say, I don't care what you think of me. But because I've been entrusted with something bigger than my reputation, I've been entrusted with the gospel. Therefore, I will throw my reputation on the fire if that's what it needs to take place for you to understand the gospel. I'm not here to make you happy, is what he's saying. He's saying, I appe- this appeal, it doesn't come from error. It doesn't come from impurity. It doesn't come from any attempt to deceive. I'm not trying to steer anybody in a wrong direction. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Verse 5, so we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. I love that because when I picture Paul going in and, and getting into a town, I don't see Paul exchanging pleasantries and catching up on the latest sports scores. When Paul sat down across the table from you, you were about to get hammered. You weren't going to have small talk. And then at the end of that, say, hey, uh, for the last three minutes, I just, I just have something I'm concerned about I need to talk to you about. No, Paul would sit down and be like, cut the chit-chat. You know why I'm here. He just sliced right through it. And he said, like, I didn't come here with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. I love that he said, like, I didn't come here to make you feel better. You know that. You know, he's, he knows, he's very self-aware that, that I think Paul was probably a bull in a china shop when it came to the church and working with church leaders especially because he just felt like, I don't have much time I have left on this earth, and I'm not going to waste any time I have with you. I don't know how long I'll be in Thessalonica. I don't know how long I'll have to write this letter before they chop my head off in Rome. Continuing on, verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, ourselves, because you have become very dear to us. If you just stop with what I said about Paul and you don't read through the fog, you'll miss who he really was and what he cared about. You want tender interactions from Paul, he will be glad to give it to you but he's not going to pretend that sin is okay. He's not going to make you feel okay about it either. Paul was going to come into town and he was going to sit down with people and he was going to say, I desired to give you not just the gospel of Christ, but my very life as well. He's saying that about, 
we were willing to give you our very lives. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. When you cut through all of the sin, Paul was standing there saying, but I'm not leaving. I'm not just going to come in and tell you what you're doing wrong. I'm going to confront sin, but I'm going to walk with you through it. I'm going to stand here with you. I'm going to gently walk with you through it because I want the gospel in you more than I want my own life. That was Paul's take. That was the model. When, so when you go back to John 13, 34 and 35, in Jesus' teaching, he says this, a new command I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, go and love one another. This is how the world will know you're my disciples, by how you love one another. What Paul is doing is he's interacting with the religious people of the day, calling them out for not stewarding their lives well, and then walking with them while they figure it out. Both of those are vitally important for us to understand. You can't just hammer people with their sin. You can't just tell them where they're wrong and then pretend you're holier than them. You need to be willing to do that. But they need to be willing to step into their lives with them and say, you're walking through a mess right now. I'll put on my hip boots and come with you. That's how Paul stewarded his life. You see, following Christ is not a segmented reality. It's a holistic lifestyle. It's not a segmented reality where we get to compartmentalize, this is when I look like Jesus, this is when I don't. This is whenever I clean myself up and do my best for God, this is when I don't. That's not stewarding our lives well. And that's the kind of stuff, that's the kind of garbage theology or thought or living that Paul would step in and say, you're off the rails here. A partial gospel is no gospel. That's what Paul would say. Partially living out of the fullness of Christ is not living out of the fullness of Christ. A holistic lifestyle that's committed to the gospel is marked by a passionate pursuit of Jesus and humble repentance to consistently run back to Him when we screw it up, and we will. It's, it's tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave us. So what does it look like to steward our lives? Well, I think the first thing we have to remember is that when you become a believer in Jesus, when you say that the cross is what I need, <laughs> that redemption is what I need, that, that what I've been looking for and searching for, the hope that I need, the, the eternal life that I seek, that my heart longs for to be connected back to my Creator, and you receive that gift of salvation because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you cease to become your own. In that moment, you were bought. Paul calls that being slaves of righteousness. Slaves to the cause of Christ. Because you are not your own. You were bought at a price. A high price. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. 
that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The Son of Man did not enter into the world to condemn the world but to save the world. To bring light into the darkness. And once, you, once the darkness has been pierced, you cannot unsee what you've seen. So let me repeat that following Christ is not a segmented reality. It's a holistic lifestyle. We're going to close with a song where one of the lines we say is, You are worthy, God, because this is who you are. You hear the cry. You hear it. You know me. And you redeem me because that's who he is. And then we are slaves to righteousness. We walk out these doors and we steward our lives well. We don't just hit the topics of the day. We steward our lives because we are the church. We are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. That is not to be taken lightly. That is to be received with responsibility, with joy, with humility, with love, all the attributes of God. And then we turn that around and we give it to the world around us. That's the great exchange. So I would ask the same questions that I've been wrestling with, I'd ask you to wrestle with. How am I stewarding my life when Paul says we came to not just give you the gospel, but our very lives as well? What does that mean for you? Are you willing to give someone the good news of Jesus and walk away and never step into their life? Dare I say, I don't see that modeled anywhere in Scripture. It's true stewardship of our lives. Man, a commitment to Christ is no joke. I don't know why we ever talk about it like it's easy. I don't know why we ever get ourselves to the point where if we can follow these certain arbitrary rules that we're good. It's way more complicated than that. But here's the good news. All the big complications, all the big hurdles, they've been taken care of by Jesus. And by grace, he allows us back in his presence over and over and over and over again for repentance. Maybe you'll walk out today and you'll desire to get into his word and be different. Or maybe you'll walk out today and you'll run back to the same default setting. But may I remind you and myself what Solomon says in Proverbs. So a dog returns to his vomit. So a fool returns to his folly. So I'll walk out. And I just go back to the same sin struggles I was in before, even though God graciously put them in front of my face to see the ugliness of them and lay at the foot of the cross for him to forgive and redeem. And I run back to them in five minutes. I'm like a dog running back to a pile of his own vomit. And that's disgusting. Let's not be those people. God, thank you. Because you, this is who you are. <laughs> You are grace. You are redemption. You are love. You are grace. You hear the cry of every broken heart. You give the captive soul a brand new start. 
this is who you are. May you be honored and glorified, not just in this place, more importantly, outside of this place, when we realize and carry that awesome gift and weighty responsibility of knowing that we are the housing place of the Holy Spirit who is in us, whom we have received from you. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. So I pray that we honor you with our bodies.